to open your Bibles to the book of Romans, and we'll just start in chapter 1, if you just open there. It's been about two months since we've been in Romans, and I felt that it would be good this morning to just <clears throat> take a moment and ask the question, uh, where have we been, understanding where we were, kind of a double meaning to that, not only where we were in the series, but where we were before Jesus found us and what he's done in our lives. Sometimes, isn't there just such a sweet sense of God's presence? Worship time this morning. Praise the Lord. What a good time. Amen. You know, the truth of God what he's really after, what his heart is after, is an amazing thing. And when our eyes become open to it, we find that it's a message that is written in every book of the Bible, almost every page of the Scripture. That God from the beginning of time, has been trying to say one thing to us. How much he loves us, how much he has planned for us. And when our eyes are really open to, to the message of, of the Scripture, we find that same heart of God, that same message written everywhere. Some places it's more clear than others. You know, you go back to, the, to Genesis, the book of beginnings, the whole gospel story is in Genesis, but it's not so well defined, it's not so easy to pick out, but it's all there. And then as you read the history of Israel, and, and you read the stories of the kings, and you read the prophets, you find that message is there. Jesus himself preach that message of the good news, the gospel. The angels trumpeted it upon his birth, and Jesus proclaimed it throughout his ministry. But as we go further along in the scripture, it seems as though God, by the Holy Spirit, turns more of the searchlight and more of the magnifying glass on the truth so that it can be more clearly fleshed out for us, that we can get a better grasp of, of the whole story. And I really believe that God chose the Apostle Paul and prompted him to write the letter to the Romans in order to lay out for us in unmistakably clear terms the whole story of the Gospel systematically, logically explained in a way that it's just as clear as a bell, just as clear as, you know, a, a, a ringing on a cold winter's morning that sounds out a note that can't be mistaken. God chose Paul to give us this letter, not just to the Romans, but to the whole church, to put in succinct, well-defined, logically explained terms, the essence and the heart of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
we have covered in some detail those first seven chapters. Next week, we're going to open the book to chapter 8 and begin our investigation of what it is to live life in the Spirit. And so I thought this morning it would be good for us to just go back and and take a flyover, a bird's eye view of those first seven chapters and remind ourselves of what God has said to us through Paul about the message. I call your attention to verses 16 and 17 in the first chapter where Paul declares the thesis of his letter, and for all practical purposes he declares for us the theme of the book. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, that is in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now, when we were studying this in the detail back, back when, we went over this verse in quite a bit of depth, and I want to remind you this morning of a couple of key things. And one of the things I want to do is maybe clear up some terminology, because I think one of the reasons that the church has such a difficult time sometimes relating to the world is that we have, I coined a word this morning, I'm going to write it down, submit it to the dictionary people, we have religified, <laughs> you like that one? <laughs> we have religified words, we've made them religious to the point that we have removed ourselves you know, from, from common folk by using terms that have churchy kinds of high-sounding phrases, and it's like, what, what are they talking about? What is the gospel? Well, the gospel, in, you know, in the language of the day, it was simply good news. Good news. You know, we share good news with each other all the time. Uh, we get an announcement in the mail that somebody's getting married. They're good news. They want to tell everybody the good news. Somebody got a, a, a job they want. It's good news. <clears throat> we have good news that we share with, with each other, and we're, we're excited about that news because it has a positive benefit. It's something wonderful that's happened, and we want to tell you about it. And all in the world, the word gospel is, is the Greek word for good news. And Paul says, I am not ashamed of the good news. I'm not ashamed of this message that I've been preaching. Because in this good news that I've been telling you about, the, the power of God is revealed for salvation. And there's another word that we've religified. Salvation. What in the world does salvation mean are you saved brother you know you walk up to somebody on the street and you ask that and it's like are you weird brother what do you mean are you saved what, what are you talking about well again it's one of those words that has taken on such a religious connotation that it's almost lost its, its real meaning but the the word behind it once again Sozo is a very simple word that means healed or restored or fixed. <laughs> Something that was broken is fixed. Something that was ill has been healed. 
Something that was in disarray has been put back together. There has been restoration. It's whole again. Actually, our concept of holistic medicine today has a lot to do with that, of treating the whole person. And in the way that the Scripture uses this word salvation or to be saved, sozo means to touch the whole person and restore us to what we ought to be. You know, the, the, the bad news is we're broken. The good news is, the, the gospel, the good news is we can be recovered. We can be restored. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of this message because it's God's power to restore us. To recover what was lost. For in it, that is in that good news message, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now when I quoted it for you a minute ago, I said a righteousness from God. And if you recall, we had quite a discussion on the meaning of the phrase. And we have in our language, we have definite articles and, and indefinite articles. We use a or an to describe uh, just any part of a group. And we have the, or the, if it's before a vowel, to describe a particular part of a group, or even, uh, you know, we can get more particular by saying this one or that one, but, but we have uh, words that we use that, that identify something, or just make mention of, of a part of a whole. And the Greek word, the is not in the original language here. There's no definite article. It's left blank. And when that's translated, the best translation is to simply replace it with our English word a. In the good news, a righteousness from God is revealed. Now the reason I belabored that point then and the reason I'm belaboring it now is that if I tell you that you're broken, and that that brokenness affects you morally, and that you stand before a holy God as a sinner, and that God is going to judge your sin, and He is a righteous God, if I tell you about the righteousness of God, and you're a sinner in your sin, that's not good news. You're in trouble. That's bad news for you. But if I tell you that in your sin, there is a holy God who must punish sin, but He has an alternative. He is willing to give you His own righteousness, a righteous gift. He is willing to give you His own righteousness if you will believe Him for it, and you can be cleansed of your sin and, and washed from your own uh, brokenness and your own iniquity. You can be made pure and whole again, and you can stand before him in that judgment without embarrassment and without shame because he has washed you from every sin. That's good news. That is good news. And Paul says, this is why I'm so excited about the good news. Because in the good news message that I have, the power of God 
is revealed to make us whole again, to restore us from our brokenness, because he is offering to us a righteousness which comes from him on the basis of faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And then Paul begins from that point, that grand theme, to explain to us clearly and systematically the meaning and the benefits of the good news. And he wants us to understand that the good news is for every part of our being. It doesn't just solve one problem but leave us in the lurch in another place. It solves all of our problems. That's the amazing thing about the good news message. But before he can take us there, he must help us understand why we need it. You know, if you go to somebody and tell them, I have good news for you, and they don't think they need it, or it doesn't interest them, it's like, oh, so what? It's no big deal. But if you go to someone who is in need, who is hurting, who has a problem, and you say, I have good news, I've heard about a cure, I've heard about a remedy, ah, that's good news. Now I know where to go for help. And Paul says the first thing that we need to understand is how lost we are in order to appreciate how really good the news is. And he begins in verse 18 of chapter 1, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Don't worry, I'm not going to read the whole book. But I just want to call your attention to these opening, uh, opening verses here in, in verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Paul wants us to understand the lost condition of human beings. Not just ungodly human beings. Not just non-religious human beings. But all human beings. All human beings are lost in sin. And he wants us to understand that. He spends the rest of this first chapter explaining why people without religion, people without the law, people that have never heard of Judaism or any other of the, of the moral religions of the world, why they are lost. And you know, most of us don't have a problem with that. We understand that ungodly people have a problem with God. I heard some news this morning that just it made me sad. I, I, don't, I guess the older I get, the more I find myself getting into these scenarios. And, and, I, and I heard this morning of, of a women's clothing store in Tenley Park, maybe some of you heard that, where someone, a gunman went in and killed the clerk and four shoppers between ages 22 and 37, five women murdered by a gunman who was trying to rob the cash drawer. And they, they haven't released any more information, but I thought, what, what a horrible thing. What a horrible thing. You know, when we say to ourselves, that guy deserves to be caught, and he deserves to be punished, he deserves everything society can throw at him, it, it, what a senseless, useless waste of human life. That guy needs to be punished. And we look at that and say, man, that, that is, that is the, the, the dregs of humanity. And you know, all that's true. 
But where we have a hard time is we have a hard time understanding that our heart, apart from Christ, is like His. That's the part that escapes us. You know, we have a tendency to look at people who epitomize the worst of the worst and say they're rotten to the core, and we tend to think in our own minds, but I'm not like that. And Paul takes these first few chapters and he tells us, yeah, people like that are rotten to the core, but then he goes to chapter 2 and he says, but those of you who have the law, those of you that have tried to live good lives, those of you that have religious lives, you're no better than those ungodly people without religion. You're all in the same soup. Last night we were having a conversation, and Rowena was telling me about um, uh, the history of credit cards in America and some of the things that have happened in the last 25, 30 years. It's, it's a pretty amazing story. But it's kind of interesting to, to know the, the scheming that has gone on and some of the clever marketing tactics to offer like zero APR or, or, or no interest until whenever, but the fine print is there. And it's, it's interesting that the people who designed these designed the fine print. They know that people tend to forget, and so they write the clause in, the minute your payment is one day late, we charge you interest all the way back to the beginning, and interest on the interest that you didn't pay, and now you have to pay exorbitant interest. Or, we're going to offer you zero APR, but the minute you're late on any payment in your life, we're going to raise that up to 29%. And the late fees, and all those kind of things. And we look at that and we say, how does that differ from this guy that walked into the store and pulled out a gun? How does the guy who goes to work in a suit and tie and sits in his office under the guise of legality come up with schemes to steal the money out of your pockets and to take money from people who are least likely to be able to appreciate those fine points, also appealing to their greed? <laughs> to want to buy things they don't have the money for. How do you describe that kind of a person? Paul says, it's the same heart. It's the same thief. It's the same person who wants to steal out of greed. But the one is doing it under the guise of law and, and the smug appearance of acceptability and who is working from a position of legal protection, but his heart isn't any different. Some of you are probably offended even by me saying that this morning. But the reality is, is that every human being is driven by the blackness and ugliness of sin. Whether we do it under the guise of law with, a, with an air of respectability, or whether we do it blatantly, illegally, uh, in a way that flies in your face and, and grieves us over senseless murders, the heart of man is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things who can know it. And Paul brings us to the conclusion by the end of chapter, the beginning of chapter 3, he brings us to this grand summation of the human condition. He says, there is none righteous. Not even one. There is not one person who seeks for God on their own initiative. Everyone has turned aside. They have all gone their own way. 
every single human being has, has strayed in rebellion to God. That is the condition of the human heart. That's our problem. We're rotten to the core. We're broken at the deepest level of our being. And it has affected us in profound ways. Our spirit is dead because of it. We, we are lifeless inside with respect to God. Our soul is permeated with the stench of sin and all kinds of foul things flow out of our lives. And our bodies have been broken as a result of that and are subject to disease and decay and, and we're dying. And indeed we will die unless we're alive when Jesus comes. We will die because of the effects of sin. For the soul that sins will die. That's the grand summation of the human condition. And it's a very bleak and a very ugly picture. But when Paul gets to the end of that, there is a glorious conjunction in verse 21 of chapter 3. But now, apart from the law, a righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Paul now begins to explain to us the good news that God has a remedy for our condition. And the good news is first of all manifested in the fact that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has come into this world as a human being. He's lived on this planet in our flesh. He's walked in our shoes. He did so without ever sinning. And He came to the cross, a perfect man, but also the God-man, God incarnate in human flesh. And he was nailed to that cross and he spilled his blood. And Paul says that blood of Jesus Christ that was spilled from that cross was the blood of a perfect man who could give his life a ransom for many. And it was the infinite blood of the God-man who could cover the sins of the world. So that whoever believes that this is true, puts their faith in God, can be completely cleansed, and absolutely forgiven. Now, if you have come to the conclusion that Paul has brought us to in chapter 3, and the Holy Spirit has brought conviction in your life, and you're standing before a holy God in your sinful shame and aware of your guilt... The greatest good news you could ever hear is that there's a way to wash away the stain. There's a way to cleanse the past. There's a way to, to forgive your sin and to take away your guilt and to enable you to stand in front of God without blame. And God says, if you will believe me for this. Aren't you glad He put it in those terms? If you will believe me, if you'll receive this by faith... You can't clean yourself up. You can't dust yourself off. You can't make yourself better. You can't improve your life. People mistakenly think, one day I'll come to God after I straighten my life out. No, you can't do that. You'll never get your life straightened out. You tweak this thing into place and that thing slides out. 
We have to climb right out of the garbage dump and stand before God with the, with the odious smell of the stench of our lives still hanging on us and say, God, you do the washing job. I believe that you can do it. I believe that Jesus died for me. By faith, I receive the forgiveness that is offered through his blood. And Paul says when we do this, that righteousness from God becomes a gift to us. I will take your sin and I will give you my righteousness. How could we pass up such a marvelous offer? I will take the rottenness of your life and I will give you the beauty of mine in exchange. All you must do is put your trust in me. Believe that it is possible and I will do this for you. Because Jesus Christ died on the cross and shed his blood to pay for my sin, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. But you know, human beings have more than one problem. I said the good news was that there's a remedy here for all of our problems. And human beings have more than one problem. We're not just people with a sin history. We're not good people who have done bad things. We have a sin nature. We have done bad things because... We have a defective heart. At the core, we are sinful in the, in the core of our nature. That's where the stumbling block of the cross is, by the way. Good people do not want to acknowledge that they have a rotten sinner. Not sinner, center. Works both ways. They don't want to recognize that. They want to look at this guy that walked into this clothing store in Tinley Park and say, he is a rotten man, but I am a good man not recognize that they too are a rotten man or a rotten woman. They have the same problem inside of them. They have the same nature. It lies in the heart of every human being. And it is from that nature that runs from God, that goes in self-will and self-determination. It is that nature that has to be dealt with. It's not good people doing bad stuff. It's bad people having bad stuff flow out of their life because it's who they are. And the good news must address not only our history, but our nature, our, our personality, the heart of our being. Can I be fixed from my broken heart? Can I be changed from the inside out? Can I be restored back to being a lover of God? Can I be turned around so that I want Him? Can there be a new nature put in me somehow? And beginning in verse 12 of chapter 5, Paul says, Therefore, just as through one man's sin entered the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men. There's the problem of the nature. So also through one man did the grace of God, verse 15, and the gift of that grace through the one man, Jesus Christ, abound for many. Not only is there a solution for my sin history, but there's a solution for my sin nature. I can be changed. I can be transformed. My heart can be healed so that I am a different person. And how does that happen? How many of you um, 
have spent any time at all looking through a microscope somewhere in your life. Okay, a lot of you. Probably all had biology, haven't you, <laughs> at some point or another? You had, to, you had to look at slides, you know. I love doing that. I, I, I spent hours and hours and hours uh, as, as a child and as a teenager looking through a microscope. It was fascinating. And I loved to go down. We had a swamp at the end of our neighborhood. There was uh, some water that would back up into a reedy area. And uh, we would, I could go to the end of the street and go through this uh, house, the backyard. A friend of mine lived there, so I could go in his backyard. And I could go to the swamp and take an eyedropper and get a dropper full of swamp water. And I'd come back and put a drop on my slide, you know, and then I'd start to look at it. And all the critters that did float in that water, they swam and they twisted and they turned. You could see a little bit of everything. It was just fascinating. But you know... When you have something under high magnification, the depth of field is like really, really shallow. And, uh, you know, just as you would dial one in, it would swim lower or something and go, go out of focus. And I'd spend a lot of time with my hands on the fine adjustment, you know, the fine tuning, trying to keep those things in focus. Sometimes great theological truths are like that for me. I'm telling you this story because we're about to get into one. Sometimes great truths are like that. I, I'm looking through the microscope, and I, I see the form. The general shape is there, but I'm trying to get it in focus so I can see the details. And, and just, I just get a little glimpse, and then all of a sudden it swims lower again. You know, and it's like, oh, I had it for a moment, you know. And, and the truths about God are just so fascinating that, that sometimes they blow my mind like that as I'm trying to get a handle on them and I, and I feel like I get an insight and then they sneak away and I have to go back and look again. Part of, part of God's delight in us and our delight in Him, by the way, is that process. You know, it's the glory of God to conceal a matter and it's, it's the glory of the King to search it out. You know, and we can search out the mysteries of God. But here's one. How many of you can relate to the fact that, that God is with you here today, right now? Can you relate to that? That, he, that God is here. How many of you can relate to the fact that God is here with you next Thursday at noon? Can you relate to that? That's a little harder, isn't it? Because you're not at next Thursday. But you know what? God is there. God is already there. And God is there next year. And God is there 15 years from now. He's already there with you. Can you get a handle on that? I can't. <laughs> I, I can believe it, but it's hard for me to understand it. Because while God is living in human space and time in history linearly, the Bible also tells us He is transcendent. He lives above it all. He knows the end from the beginning. Now, why am I taking this side trail? Because Romans chapter 6 gives us some insight into the person of God and how it is that he deals with my sin nature. And this is what he says. He says, all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. Now, when did Jesus die? 2,000 years ago. How could I be there? 
2,000 years ago. Even more significantly, how could Abraham be there 2,000 years in the future? But with God, the death of Jesus Christ is the summating point of all human history. Everything points to Jesus from behind and from before. Everything points to Jesus. And if I believe God by faith, the Scripture says He will put me into the death of Christ. That's mind-boggling. That's why it's by faith. Because I I cannot explain to you how I can live today and have been in Jesus 2,000 years ago. But the same God who's with me today, was with me last year, and will be with me this week, is the God who transcends time and can put me in Jesus 2,000 years ago and put Abraham in Jesus 2,000 years ahead of time. It's the same God. And he says that when Jesus died, by faith, I died. And when Jesus was buried, my rotten old sin nature was buried with him. And when Jesus came out of that grave, resurrected in glorious power, I was raised with him to walk in a brand new life. Now, I don't understand how that can happen. But it's not mental gymnastics. God Almighty, who reigns over eternity, is able to do that. So that when you put your faith and trust in Him, He can cause you to be reborn in Jesus Christ through His death and burial and resurrection. And this is the miracle that not only does God take care of my sin history, but He can deal a death blow to my sin nature and raise me up in Jesus with a brand new, reborn life to walk in newness of life. That's an amazing story. By faith. Paul explains how the death of Jesus Christ solves our history and solves our nature. And then he takes us to Romans chapter 7, and he tells us about the law. And and, and in Romans 7... He explains to us, because how many of you now that you've been born again and you have come to newness of life in Jesus Christ, how many of you have never been tempted since then? Anybody want to raise their hand for that one? Never sinned? No problems? Everything's smooth sailing, right? Perfect obedience, you've been living holy ever since. Any any takers? No, you have a product, Angela. I'll talk to you later. (laughs) You know, Paul talks about a conflict. And the conflict comes because we have a habit. We have a habit of trying to be good by keeping the rules. And Paul explains the law in Romans 7. Because until we understand the law, we still have a problem growing up in Christ. And it's in chapter 7 that he explains this to us. He says, now look, you've died with Christ, you've been buried with Him, you've been raised to walk in a a new life. God has forgiven your past and He's changed your heart. Now, how do you live? You can't live the old way. You can't live under the old law. Why? Because the law is bad. No, the law is good. There wasn't anything wrong with the law. God gave the law. 
God gave the law as an expression of his character. When he said, thou shalt not steal, it's because God's not a thief. When he says, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve, it's because he's the only God there is. There is no other God, so you should not have any other gods in front of him. He's the only God there is. So the law expresses the character of God. The law is good. The problem is the law has no power. Standing outside of me, it gives me an objective standard of moral righteousness and truth, but it doesn't give me any help. It can't do anything for me. It just objectively stands there in stone. Here's the truth. But so what? I can't live up to that in my own strength. In fact, Paul goes on to say in Romans 7, it's worse than that. The sin nature actually rebels against the law. In fact, the more you say thou shalt not, the more we have a tendency to say, oh yes, I will. You, don't have, you know, we do that as adults very, in a very sophisticated manner. But those of you that are parents and grandparents, you've got little ones running around, you can see it in them, you know, when they're about one and a half, two years old, maybe younger, maybe older, but you can see it in them. What do you have to do to get a kid to crawl toward a, toward a light socket? Don't touch that. You know, and it's not just curious. The, the, the initial impulse may have been curiosity, but the third and fourth attempts have nothing to do with curiosity. You see the little glint in the eye. You see that determined little look. It's that little brain saying, I will because you said I can't. I will because you told me not to. I can do what I please. It turns up very young in life and it stays with us. Paul says the problem with the law is not the law, it's the broken heart. We're damaged goods. He says the problem is, in and of ourselves, we are incited by the law to rebel. So he says the remedy is, when we died in Jesus Christ, we also died with respect to the law. We have been divorced from the law. We've been dead to the law. It's more than divorced. We're dead to the law. It no longer applies. We have a different kind of life to live. He cries at the end of chapter 7, Who will set me free from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ my Lord. He does not leave us in despair. He says there's hope. And that hope is in Jesus. I can get out of this mess. How do I get out? Through life in the Spirit. Do you remember when you were dating? Or some of you maybe haven't dated yet. but Anybody have to tell you to spend time with your person to be? That man or woman that you were so in love with? Did anybody have to tell you to spend time with them? You need, to, you need to set time aside in your schedule to be with each other. You know, you ought to do that. Anybody have to do that for you? No, you probably didn't need that kind of help. In fact, you looked for ways to get together. You looked for ways to, to be with each other. You looked for opportunities. You know, you did things for each other. You just, because you wanted to, because you just loved to. And Jesus says, you know, you guys have been off in sin 
running your own game, living for yourself. And every time the law comes in front of you, you you rebel and kick and scream. But I will cleanse your sin. I will put to death the sin nature. I will put my spirit in you. I will cause you to be born again. And then your walk with me will not be based on that stone tablet out there saying, do this, don't do that. But your walk with me will be based on a love relationship with my spirit living in you. And now you will desire to follow me. You will desire to please me. You will desire to walk with me because I love you. And I've loved you with an everlasting love. And I have restored your love for me. And we can walk together in the power of my spirit. And when I prompt you, you will not find yourself weak and unable because my Spirit will empower you to do from the heart all those things that I direct you to do. And we will walk together in a love relationship. It's not holiness by the rules. It's godliness by the Spirit. Totally different way of life that is provided for us in Jesus Christ. Friends, that is what he offers us. And those first seven chapters of Romans explain to us how Jesus is the remedy for every problem we have. And beginning in verse 1 of chapter 8, as we turn the corner, he says, now, I've given you my spirit. Let's see what that looks like as you live and walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, I pray that you'll open our eyes and our hearts to understand these glorious truths. And as we come to your table this morning to share the bread and the the cup, that you would cause us to worship you as we remember the great salvation that you have purchased for us with your own blood on the cross. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.